Welcome to Mercy Street Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Mercy Street Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Our desire is to unleash healthy disciple makers in West Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing to listen to new messages every week. Have a God-filled day. encouraged by you. So you let me pray. Amen. Okay, so I got my degree in wildlife and fishery sciences, and in that degree, I had an opportunity to do something really great. In New Mexico, I took an internship, and in that internship, I had an opportunity to wrangle snakes. Yes, wrangle snakes. Not just any snakes, specifically rattlesnakes. Okay, so picture this right now. I am on a cliff face. There, 10 feet behind me, there's a probably 50 feet drop. Uh, and right in front of me, there's a rock prairie rattlesnake. Now, a rock prairie rattlesnake is about four feet long. It's not as big as a, a, a diamondback rattlesnake. So if you've ever seen a diamondback rattlesnake, those are huge. It's not as big, but it's technically just as venomous. So there I am. I have the tongs. I have like this little snake stick. And this thing is coming at me, like furious at me that I'm in its territory, furious that I'm trying to wrangle it. My job is to catch the snake and put it in a tube so that we can extract some of its venom. That was my job. Now, picture yourself in that situation. (laughs) Just for a moment, just for fun, right? Just for fun. Picture yourself in that situation. You're probably experiencing what we would like to call a flight or fight response, right? You're either thinking, I need to run away as fast as I can, or I need to smush the snake to death, right? As fast as I can. Those are, your, those are your two responses, typically. That's natural human beings, and we've all been in those situations. Maybe not a rattlesnake situation like I found myself in. Maybe for you, it was something a little different, right? Maybe it was you... Uh, got caught in an embarrassing situation in in class someday, and you were in a fight-or-flight situation. Or maybe uh, your kid is, like, right around the corner, and you, like, walking down the hallway, and she or she pops out and says, whoa. And in that moment, you're in a fight-or-flight situation. You either go, ah, and run away, or you, like, punt your baby. Um, I'm I'm not a father, so I don't know what the reaction should be. Um, But we've all experienced that. We've all experienced that fight-or-flight response. And sometimes it's not as drastic as a rattlesnake. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. Uh, so a few years ago, I had an opportunity to work in, as an audio engineer at the Museum of Biblical, uh, Biblical Art. Museum of Biblical Art. I was an audio engineer, and during one of the events, I was cornered by a lady. Uh, she was an artist. She was not a believer. She just really appreciated art, and she was talking to me about my job, about what I did. And what I did essentially was I, I created the audio files that would accompany some of the works of art. And as we were talking about my job, she asked me, hey, what do you do outside of this? Well, what I did outside of that job is I go to seminary. I was going to seminary. I'm still going to seminary. I'm going, to, I'm going there to become a pastor, right? But in the moment, I froze. Um, because of two things. One, I knew that she wasn't a believer. 
I knew who this woman was and how much she valued certain jobs, right? Certain professions. Uh, I knew that the moment that I told her that I would be a pastor, the moment that I told her that my primary goal in life was to study God's Word, that she would judge me and what I do. I knew it. And in that moment, I experienced a fight and flight response. And if we're honest today, we all have those moments. And we'll have those moments. If you're a Christian today and you are professing your faith outside of church, you will experience a moment in which you're placed in a situation where, the, where the, a, you will be tempted to lessen the gospel. You will be tempted in the moments of persecution, in the moments of uncomfortableness. You will be tempted to ignore the mission that God has placed you in. In those moments, what shall we do? In the moments where we are tempted to walk away from our faith, to lessen our faith, or to overreact to a situation of injustice, to overreact to a situation of embarrassing moments, how will we be steadfast in the mission of the kingdom? So in the, last week, Michael talked about the mission of the kingdom uh, in the triumphal entry of Jesus. And this week, what we're going to be covering in Matthew 26 is Jesus' last hours before he's crucified. So as he's captured and going through trial, he is experiencing a tremendous amount of persecution and injustice, a tremendous amount of mockery, of, of, uh, of violence against him, of all sorts of persecution. And our, my hope today is that as we look at this passage and as we look at those final hours, we get to see how Jesus chooses to elevate God's mission above his own self-preservation. And we'll also get to see his foil. So if you don't know what the word foil means in literary terms, it means in a story, someone who is essentially the opposite of another character. So if Jesus is the person who chooses God's mission over self-preservation, his foil is Peter. So we'll get to see both of their stories and how they unfold, and we'll get to see just exactly how each chooses to live their life in those moments. So let's dive right in. Uh, so Matthew 26, we're going to start Matthew 26, 36 through 39. And the first thing that I want to talk about as far as uh, putting God's mission above self-preservation is that putting God's mission above self-preservation requires consistency in prayer. So let's read Matthew 26, 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking him with him, Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what is Jesus experiencing in this moment? So he is in the garden, and he is troubled and sorrowful. 
He is experiencing great distress because he knows exactly what's about to happen. He knows the future because he, he's Jesus. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's been essentially talking about his demise for a long time now. Uh, he had just actually told the disciples pretty much what was going to happen. And so he is, it's at late at night in the middle of the wilderness, and he is distressed. And what I find comfort, comforting about this is here is the God of the universe, uh, our Savior, experiencing fear. As if I would experience fear. As if I would experience this. So what we can draw from this experience that Jesus is, 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 is having is that the mission of the kingdom is a sobering experience that even our Lord felt in his final hours. The mission of the kingdom is not an easy thing to follow. It's not an easy thing to walk. This path, this narrow path of the mission is hard. This narrow path is scary. This narrow path does cause us to tremble. And so as we consider what Jesus' experience was in that garden as he was preparing himself, his mind, uh, what does he do in response to the fear that he is experiencing? He goes straight to prayer. That's his response. As fear begins to overcome him, his first response is to go to his father in prayer. Is to go to his father in prayer. And his prayer is honest. His prayer is vulnerable. He tells the father to let this cup pass. He asks his father to allow this thing that is about to come to let it pass. Because it's a scary thought to have to die. He was a mortal man, tempted the same way that we are tempted. And so as we think about our own mortality, we can, we can imagine how terrifying that is to know that I'm about to die. And so he was honest and vulnerable, which is, for me, comforting. But I think what is different from me and Jesus is that while he was honest and vulnerable in his prayer, he was also faithful and trusting. As you will, I will do. As you will, I will do. Regardless of how he felt, he knew that the mission was more important than his self-preservation. He knew that the mission was more important than his survival of the moment. And so even if he was fearful, he knew that the mission was worthwhile to pursue. Here's Jesus in his last hour, scared but willing to walk this narrow path, this scary narrow path. The other thing that I want to point out about this moment in Jesus' ministry is that his prayer comes before the cross and not during the cross, right? It, it occurs before. This was preemptive. How often do I find myself in the moments where I feel overweight, overweighted by all of my troubles, by all of the persecution, by all of the things that happen in my life, and I find myself after the fact or during just kind of going, please God save me. Instead of praying now for the moments to come. Here we see a method of prayer that Jesus wants us to follow. 
one of preemptive prayer for what's to come. Like I said at the beginning, you as a Christian, if you are a professing Christian and you're about that mission, you will experience persecution in some way or form. It will happen. It may not be in this intensity, right, of you're about to die, but you will experience it if you're about this life. And if that is you, your prerogative is to pray now and pray always for the moments to come. That's what we can learn about Jesus. Now, what about Peter? All right, let's learn about Peter. So Peter was with him. He was actually with him in prayer. So as, as I think about it in, in the situation, they're in the garden. He tells the disciples to come and be there. He tells most of them to wait, but he takes three of them with him in this little circle of prayer, right? And there's the two sons of Zebedee and Peter. Jesus is praying, sorrowful and stuff, and they fall asleep. Now, I want to be fair. Praying in the wee hours of the night is difficult. Who's here has ever, who here has ever tried it? Like, one in the morning, two in the morning, just pray. Yeah, it's hard. That, I like sleep, okay? I, I, I love sleep. I treasure sleep, okay? Um, but more than that, this isn't just short prayers. These are extended prayers, I believe Jesus was praying for a long time. So not only does Peter have to endure night prayer, he has to endure long night prayer. Now, I've had this experience before. I've worked at a camp where my primary position was prayer team, and I prayed for three hours straight and then had six hours off, and we would do this for four days. And so sometimes my, my shift would be in the wee hours of the night. So if you have never prayed for hours at a time, that's exhausting by itself and super distracting and super, super hard. But if you've never tried that and also be sleep deprived, I welcome you to try. Oh, the places your mind will go. So I'm sympathetic. I know. I've been here. I know that this is hard. But I think, I think that there's a difference between dozing off and what Peter is experiencing here, because he doesn't just fall asleep that one time, like, you know, drift off to sleep. He falls asleep three different times, despite the fact that each time Jesus wakes him up and goes, come on, dude, this is important. Focus. So why? Why does he keep falling asleep? What is different about Peter in this moment that is not the same with Jesus? Well, I believe if we read Matthew 26, 40, we'll start to see a little bit of that. So Matthew 26, 40, I'll read it really quickly. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus in the moment is, Jesus is always teaching, always. Every single moment as he, that he was on this earth, he was teaching his disciples. And in this moment, I believe he was trying to tell them and teach them again to pray, to pray fervently, to take this moment very seriously because persecution is coming. My hours are few. I'm about to die. We, I, I need you to take this seriously because temptation is coming for you. I believe Jesus knew, knows exactly what Peter's about to do. Peter conveniently forgot. But 
you see that his unwillingness to stay awake for prayer shows his lack of care for the gravity of the situation. He's been told that these are Jesus' final hours. He knows. He should know. He's been told four times. This is going to come up again later, so just keep that in mind. He's been told four times that he's about to die. Um, and what it shows is that he doesn't, he doesn't take it seriously. He doesn't take this persecution seriously, which is why he doesn't take this prayer seriously. Jesus knew the temptation would come, so he's in prayer now before it's to come. And he's trying to teach Peter of this life, of the life being about prayer. And yet Peter falls asleep. And so what about us? As we think about this part of the story, as we think about how God's mission above self-preservation requires consistency in prayer, we must run the prayer as a preemptive measure for difficult times. I need to be in prayer now for the persecution I'm going to experience tomorrow in the future. Not wait when it comes, because when I, if I wait for when it comes, I will succumb to the pressure of the situation. We do it now so that we can gird ourselves, so that we can prepare our minds and our hearts for what's to come. And we must be consistent in prayer always. See, Jesus wasn't just in prayer in this moment. He had been in prayer always. He had been in prayer since the very beginning. We see evidence of that throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Gospels. Jesus was constantly in prayer. And so, as we think about it, I think about the prayer thing that we have now, 517, right? What does 517 even mean? Uh, Lisa, where are you? Lisa, what is 517? Which is? Pray without ceasing. It's the best verse because it's only three words. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. That's one that you should commit to memory because that's the attitude of someone who gets prepared for the mission. That's the attitude of someone who is ready when, when, when persecution comes. One who is constantly in prayer, one who is preemptively in prayer for the moment where he is tempted, where she is tempted. We need to be a church, a culture, uh, a body who values prayer now and always for the future times to come. And in, it's in that that we be prepared for when those moments do come. So that is how we need to be consistent in prayer. But God's mission above self-preservation requires more as well. Uh, it's one thing to have prayer, but it's another thing uh, to have more than that. So as we read further into the scriptures, Matthew 26, 47 to 50, we'll see that God's mission above self-preservation in our lives requires care and compassion for people. All right, so Matthew 26, 47 through 50. 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the portrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they, they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Okay, so what is Jesus experiencing at this moment? So he had just reprimanded the, the 
his followers for sleeping for the third time, and then he said, hey, they're coming for me right now. And what happens at that moment? Judas and his posse comes. There's a mob. It's not just a few people. There's a mob waiting for Jesus in the garden. They're waiting to take him. And the sign is whoever Judas kisses is the person they will seize. Now, this is important only because it's probably dark. They don't know who this person is going to be, so Judas is going to go ahead of them and identify this person. And this is just for you as a little tidbit. Apparently, in the Greek, it's not just a kiss. It's like profuse kissing. So it was like exaggerated, like mwah, 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 um, which is bizarre. Um, But that's just for you. Um, So here is Jesus. Now, there's a few things I want to point out about this situation. So here's a mob that's coming at, the, at night uh, to capture Jesus. Here's a mob who is armed to the teeth to capture Jesus. Now, does that look like a situation of a man who is innocent being captured? No. They're treating him like a dangerous criminal. That's one thing to experience, to, to think about. Jesus is being treated and viewed as a dangerous criminal, despite the fact that he is innocent of any violence ever. So, you see that the injustice starts early here. And the other thing that we get to kind of think about as, he, as his experience happens is that Judas was one of them. Judas has been following him for a long time. Judas is considered one of the disciples Judas is considered a friend. As we look at the scriptures, we see that Jesus calls Judas a friend. Now, I did the research. I wanted to look and see if, like, is Jesus being sarcastic here? Is, he, is it like, you know, friend or like, you know, bro? I, I don't know. I wanted to see, like, is Jesus being, like, kind of secretly passive-aggressive? And the truth is, he's not. He's not. He's calling him a friend because that's what he is. And so think about that. Jesus is not only being captured and treated like a dangerous criminal, crim, criminal, but he's being sold out by one of his close friends, by one of his close followers. Put yourself in that situation. How would you feel in that moment? What would your flight, flight response be there? So what did Jesus do? Like I said, he called him friend. And I think what's so significant about him calling him friend is that even in the moment, even in the moment where he's experiencing persecution, where he's experiencing this injustice, even in the moment where his friend is literally stabbing him in the back, he still cares for him. He doesn't hate Judas. This is the last time that he will converse with Judas at all. And he still calls him friend because he still cares for him. That's beyond what I can do, right, as I think about that situation. I don't think I have that kind of compassion or care for anybody. And the other thing that Jesus does is that he surrenders willingly. He avoids everyone's death. No one dies that day. Think about that. Armed to the teeth, ready for a fight, ready for resistance, and Jesus saves everyone. He could have escaped He could have fought. He is God, after all, right? He has vanished in the past. 
If you read the scriptures closely, he's been mobbed before, but he like ninja vanishes right at the last minute. So he's done it before, but he willingly surrenders. He is more than capable of Thanos snapping everybody out of existence, right? I am inevitable. Everybody out of existence. But he doesn't. He surrenders. Why? Because he knows that the mission is to save people. The mission is to care for people, even the ones who are capturing him in the moment, even the ones who are spitting in his face, even the ones who stab him in the back. That's the mission. And so when you see what Jesus does, you see that not only does he show his sovereignty over all the situation and all the things because he knows exactly what's going to happen, but he shows compassion for the people by sticking with the mission over preserving his own life. He knows that by giving his life, by, by willingly going with them, that he's going to die. He knows that that leads to his death and chooses it anyway because he cares and has compassion for people. So what about Peter? Well, Peter is a victim of the moment. Um, so the passage that we just read, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't say Peter exactly, but if you read uh, John, the Gospel of John, you'll know that he names him. Like, he is the one who cut off the ear. It was Peter. Uh, thanks, John. Um, so it was Peter. He was a victim of the moment. Now, if you are familiar with Peter's story, Peter, this is, very, this is a very Peter thing to do. Like, he is a, always a victim of the moment. He is super excitable. He's very insensible. And so in the moment, here's this mob that comes and they grab and lay hold of Jesus. And in the moment, he's like, I got to go turbo man on these guys. I'm like, draws a sword. And of all things, he cuts off an ear. Right? So I'm thinking he just is like flailing. He's just like swinging the sword and clips an ear. Maybe just like a tip or something. I don't know. And He's just a victim of a moment. And we've seen this. The mothers in this room, you've seen moments like this all the time because you've had children. I was just told yesterday about a story about a little girl um, and her sister. So her sister was about four, is about four years older than her. And um, the sister is like slowly nudging the little sister off of a bench, right? Slowly nudging, little nudge, nudge, messing with her, I guess. And the little sister, in a moment, just reactionary. She's not even a year old. Just reactionary. Because this happens, right? Reaches up without making a gesture, grabs her sister by the hair, and pulls her all the way down into submission off of the bench. Even at one, you start to see this fight-and-flight response and this, like, overtaking of sin. Like, if you're a mother today, you have seen sin, right? You, you have seen it. It overcomes your children in moments. They're, ca- they're caught up in moments. And I think the same is the case for Peter. He is often a victim of the moment. And in this moment, he is a victim. And one thing that a commentator that I love that he said uh, about Peter is that he has a pattern of this. He has done this over and over again. And so, I'm going to quote him right now. Peter had argued with the word. Peter had denied the word. 
And Peter had disobeyed the word when he went to sleep. And now he ran ahead of the word as he reacted in fear. Peter, in the moment, was like a child. But as I'm looking at myself and looking at this story, I go, wow, I'm a lot like Peter. I react like this all the time. In fact, I react like this as I, as I read the Gospels. And I look at Peter's story and I go, I would never do that. I would never allow Jesus to die alone. I would die with Jesus. Who do I sound like? I sound like Peter. I sound like Peter. Peter was more concerned with self-preservation than the mission. In that moment, he was not ready, and so he reacted out of fear. That was his response. In that moment, his response was fight. Even though he'd been told that the mission all along was for Jesus to die. He reacted out of fear. So Jesus did not need Peter's protection. So as we read Matthew 26 through 50, 26, 52 through 54, I'll read it really quickly. Then Jesus said to him, this is after he cut off the ear, put your sword back in its place. <laughs> For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will not at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that I must be so? He doesn't need a bodyguard. Jesus does not need a bodyguard. Like I said, He can ninja vanish anytime He wants, but the point that He makes in this passage is that, hey, at a snap of the finger, the legions of heaven can come down and wreck these fools. If that's what I wanted, I do not need you to cut off an ear. Of all things. Of all things. I've got the legions of heaven backing me up. Heck, if I wanted to, I can just think it and all the ears will fall off. But Jesus knows that's not the plan. Jesus knows that's not the mission. The mission was to die. The mission was to be captured. The mission had been told to Peter four times. Four times. He knew because Jesus had told him that I am meant to die. And yet Peter still reacted in the same way. How many mothers can attest to that, right? I know my wife can attest to how many times she has to tell me stuff before I finally listen. Dishes, Waldo. Dishes. Dishes. Wait, what? You want to? Oh, dishes. Okay. Despite, despite the childish behavior of Peter, despite his brashness, despite his uh, desire to put self-preservation over the mission, Jesus cared for him anyway. Because to be honest, he probably should have been put to death. If Jesus hadn't intervened in that moment, Jesus, Peter would have more, more than likely been killed by the mob or put on trial for what he did. But Jesus intervened, again, saving everybody because he cared and there was a plan. And the plan was to care about people over self-preservation. People. He cared about Peter. He cared about the, his oppressors. No one had to die except for him. That was the mission. And so what about us? 
Obviously, we probably won't be in a situation quite like this, but there's going to be moments where you will be incensed by an injustice that's done to you, whether someone calls you a name, mocks you, uh, persecutes you for what you're doing by spreading the gospel, by fighting for social justice, by whatever. Anger will take hold of you. I, I have moments, even as even-keeled as I am, I have my moments where I get so angry that I just want to do something. But I know and I need to remember that the mission of God is not violence, but peace. The mission of God is to save people, not to kill people. Not to burn people. That's what Jesus taught, right? Jesus taught to, to, to turn the other cheek. Jesus taught to to love your enemies despite what they do to you, to put burning hot coals of kindness on them because their life matters too. Despite how we feel, we have to value life like Jesus valued life. We have to have compassion for people. So in the moments where we're experiencing persecution and the response in us is self-preservation in either lashing out in violence or lashing out in hate, we have to remember and be girded by the truth that the mission is more important than our own comfortableness. The mission is more important than our own desire for retribution. It's just more important. So we care for people. Our call is to value compassion for people over our own comfort and safety. Is that you today? Is that you today? Is that you today? So, God's mission above self-preservation requires care and compassion for people. But as we read the last bit of what we're going to read today, is we also see that God's mission above self-preservation requires confidence and conviction in the mission. So not just, not just prayer, not just care and compassion for people, but confidence and conviction in the mission. All right, let's read Matthew 26, 57 through 62. Then those who, laid seized, who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, the last two came forward and said... <clears throat> This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Okay, so there's a few things I want to point out about this experience that Jesus is having right now. Uh, the first thing is very, very, uh, very clear. This is an illegitimate trial. Now, uh, by our standards, as we read the story of the trials that Jesus has to go to, go through, uh, we recognize that by our standards of America, this is a kangaroo court, as some people call um, I actually don't know why it's called a kangaroo court. That's okay. Um, this is not a fair trial. But what I want to do right now is read to you why it's not a rare, fair trial. This is just 
history evidence that I have acquired. So I'm going to read this really quick. All criminal cases at the time of Jesus' persecution and trial must be tried during the daytime. This is Jewish law. It must be tried during the daytime, must be completed during the daytime. Criminal cases could not be transacted during the Passover season at all. Only if the verdict was not guilty could a case be finished on the day it was begun. Otherwise, a night must elapse before the pronouncement of the verdict so that feelings of mercy might have time to arise. Further, no decision of the Sanhedrin, which is the people who are making the decision in this point, was valid unless it met in its own meeting place, the Hall of Hewn Stone in the Temple Precincts. So they are not meeting in that place. That's why that point is made. In regards to witnesses, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses separately examined and having no contact with each other. Still further, in any trial, the process began by the laying before the court of all the evidence for the innocence of the accused before the evidence for his guilt was adducted. How many of those things were broken in this story? All of them. This was done at night. This was done in a secret place. This was done uh, without the presence of all the people. This was done uh, the same day. Their judgment happened within the hour. This was not a fair trial. This was unjust. He did not have any counsel in his favor. He did not have any witnesses in his favor. The Pharisees had set up the false witnesses ahead of time. They all spoke. They were prepared for this moment. This was an unfair trial that Jesus had no chance of winning. No chance. And I think that the reason for it is that the Pharisees and the powers that be were setting up a situation in which they were hoping that Jesus would react with fear and trembling. That he would respond in one of two ways. They were hoping this. They were, they were hoping he would fight. They were hoping he would become indignant and therefore making himself accused, accusatory, making himself the criminal that they're trying to portray him to be. And then, if that wasn't the case, they were hoping that he would just give up his mission. They were hoping he would acquiesce. They were hoping that he would flee in fear, that he would give up his claim as king. In fact, I think as I read this and as I look at all the commentaries, I think that's the only way Jesus would have survived. He could have lived if he had just given up his claim. If he had said, ah, I was wrong, my bad. Did Jesus do that? The point of the trial was not to bring up religious indictment. And this is important for us to hear. It's not to, not, it's not to say, hey, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. That's actually not what they were trying to do. What they were trying to do was come up with a political indictment because they knew that the Romans were the final judgment call and the Romans would not act for a religious indictment, only for a political one. So what they were trying to prove is that Jesus was out to dethrone the Roman government. That's why they brought false witnesses. That's why they set up this court the way they did. They were trying to get him to confess that he was attempting to overthrow the Romans. So that's the experience that Jesus is feeling. 
There is no justice here for Jesus. He is an innocent man being tried for things he's not guilty of. So what does Jesus do? He endures. He endures injustice. He endures the mockery. He endures the abuse that we see later in the chapter because he has confidence and conviction in the mission. He knows what he's meant to do. Matthew 26, 64. And Jesus said to him, after being asked, uh, are you the son of God? You have said so, but I will tell you. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He didn't come out and say, I am the Son of Man. He said, you said it. You've been saying it. You've seen my ministry. He let his works do the talking. This unjust court wasn't worth him arguing for his life because he knew what the mission was, right? But he did let him know what was to come. That soon, the Son of Man will be seated in the seat of power. That soon, Jesus, him, will be at the right hand of the Father ruling. This was coming soon. Now, the priest caught this. That's why he tore his robe that's why he reacted the way he did, because essentially what Jesus had said to them in, in terms is, you will kill me, and I am Messiah. You will kill me, and I am Messiah. That's the mission. So let's, let's do this. That's what Jesus is saying. Kill me, because this is exactly who I am, and this is the mission. He knew ahead of time. He had the confidence and the conviction of this mission, of what he had to do. And because of that, he was able to endure so much. He was able to endure an unjust trial. He was able to endure all the punishment that was to come on his way. In fact, if you read later on, it says that they spat in his face, that they beat him to a pulp, that they asked, that somebody slapped him and said, hey, who slapped you? If you are this great prophet, who slapped you? And as I read and did research on this, the reason why they were saying this is some, some of the Gospels say that he was blindfolded, but some commentators say that he was beaten so badly that he was, his eyes were swollen shut. He couldn't physically see. He endured that. That kind of abuse can only be combated by conviction that the mission is right and worth fighting for. Worth enduring. So what about Peter? Well, we already know that he was hiding in the back. So he was present. He was able to hear and see what was going on. He knows essentially what's happening to Jesus the whole time because he's, he's there. But as we read further on, we see what happens later, right? When approached about his affiliation with Jesus, he denies him three times, which was prophesied. Jesus told him he would do this, and Peter reacted in the very Peter way when he was told. Um, but let's, let's read Matthew 26, 74 through 75. Uh, so Peter had been asked this twice now. Do you know Jesus? And he denies them both times. So this is the last denial, 74 through 75. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself after being said that, hey, you, you know him. He began to invoke a curse on himself to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and, the Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This was 
quite possibly Peter's most epic failure in his ministry. If, if he was here, he would say this was the worst moment. He did not just deny him. He didn't say, I don't know that guy. He swore on his mom. He swore on his dad. He swore on his mom's mom. He swore on everything. He said, I swear to everything. I do not know that guy. I don't know that man. This is the Peter who was fervently behind Jesus the whole time. This was the Peter that said, I would never deny you. I would die for you if I had to. I would go to death for you. This is the Peter that cut somebody's ear off. Fervently denying that he even knew who Jesus was. In this moment, he falls victim to that fight and flight response, right? He flew. He said, no, I don't want a part of this business. Because he wasn't prepared. He wasn't prepared for the moment. In the moment where he was asked these questions, he did not have the conviction necessary to have confidence in this mission. He didn't have it. And so he fell. Where was all the bravado that Peter had showed before? Where was all the confidence that he had throughout the Gospels? It was Peter's false confidence before this moment that showed that he was not confident in Jesus in the mission. He was confident in his own strength and will. That's what he was confident in. He was confident that Peter was the man. How many of us today trust our own strength and will above the mission of God, above our relationship with Jesus, above the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as we prepare for those moments? So what about us? We have to have confidence and conviction in the mission of the kingdom. And it cannot be willed out of our own strength. Because our strength is fallible. It has to be exercised over time with obedience and faithfulness. That's the part that Peter failed to see. Is that he had relied so much on his own will, so much on his own strength, that he forgot to see that he had to be preparing for this moment the whole time. That's what Jesus was trying to show him. To be like a child dependent upon the Holy Spirit. To be in prayer at all times. To be fervent in the Scriptures. To be meek and mild. He was preparing him. He was trying to tell him the path. We must prepare ourselves for those difficult moments like Jesus did. And pray that the Holy Spirit gives us conviction when the persecution comes. This, person, this, this conviction doesn't come easy. This confidence doesn't come easy. It comes through reading the scriptures. It comes through fervent prayer. It comes through pleading to the Holy Spirit every day that he can give us confidence and boldness to proclaim this gospel regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences. We need to boldly go out and preach the gospel. But that's impossible if we don't have this conviction that you are God's messenger. That's you. So as we think about everything that was shared today, 
Choosing God's mission above our own self-preservation is something that we must be prepared for and work out before temptation comes. So I think back to uh, that snake moment, right? And then the moment also with that lady at the museum. There's two key differences between those situations. Uh, For the rattlesnake one, right? I was prepared for the moment. I had been studying that rattlesnake. I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I had talked through the game plan with my friends. I had the tools necessary to capture this snake. But most of all, I had the confidence knowing this snake was not going to buy me as long as I stuck to the plan. And here am I at the museum. And I don't mention the gospel at all when I've been given a clear chance to do it with someone who does not know Jesus. And I think back, and I'm ashamed. And I pray every day that I get to see that woman again. That I get to share with her this great mission, this great gospel that we have. And while I failed in the past, and I'm sure many of you have similar experiences, I have confidence, we can have confidence that God's work in our lives is not over, that it will continue, that he will continue to use you because that's exactly what he did with Peter. Peter denied him three times, turned his back on Jesus, and yet he finished well. He is often referred as the father of the church. God used him mightily, and that's the hope that we have. Now, while we may have failed in the past when persecution came, when uncomfortableness came. While we may have failed, we can have hope that Jesus can still use us in this mission. The mission of God is hard. It is not an easy path. It requires perseverance. It requires steadfastness. It requires a willing heart to follow God in uncomfortable places. Will you follow him there? And are you prepared today? Can we prepare together for the difficult times that are coming? Because this mission is worth it. This mission is worth it. Thank you again for listening to Mercy Street Church Podcast. Until we meet again, Shalom. Shalom.